Hello, before this episode gets going, I wanted to apologize to everybody. There was a bit of an issue with the audio and some spots where Carrie is talking are just not as clear as I generally like them to be. Um, that happens when somebody's phone connection isn't always the best and in Carrie's condition, unfortunately, he was getting uh, the remnants of a hurricane coming through the Atlanta area where he was at. So it did create some audio issues. So up front, I want to apologize about that. And also, I wanted to make sure that everybody heads over to spondypodcast.com where you can sign up for the newsletter. I have one coming out here pretty soon. And also, I wanted to again thank Sandra Clutterbuck as a producer on the show. With that, here we go and enjoy. Rain meets a river, river meets a valley, valley meets a rain. Welcome to the Ankylosing Spondylitis Podcast. My name is Jason Sacco and I'm your host. As a 35 plus year Spondy, I'm looking to use this show to bring the Spondy community closer. I'll give my lifelong battle with AS to you. That includes triumphs, tragedies, and lessons. So sit back, enjoy, and know you are not alone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Ankylosing Spondylitis Podcast. I'm really excited because part of what I want to do with this show is bring people's stories to all of you listeners. And I do that by interviewing people that have ankylosing spondylitis or non-radiographic. And today I've got a really great guest. I've got Carrie King on. And Carrie has been dealing with ankylosing spondylitis, oh geez, most of his life was diagnosed about 12 years or so ago in his late 40s and has had an interesting journey that I thought was really great to share with everybody. And with that said, Carrie, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. How are you today, Jason? Great. I really appreciate the time to come on and talk with all the listeners to share your story about your journey with ankylosing spondylitis. What I'd like you to do is kind of take us back to what it was like for you before the diagnosis. What led you up to finally getting that diagnosis? Sure. I actually um, started on NSAIDs when I was in my teens, uh, when they came out with them. Actually, before that, I was on Celdine and to cope with arthritic pain. And they could not figure out why I had arthritic pain at that age. So I lived on NSAIDs all the way until I was about 46 years old. And uh, at that point, they took me off the NSAIDs because I had been diagnosed with kidney failure due to some nerve damage from my spine. And that's when I got the diagnosis, too, that I had ankylosing spondylitis. And what caused us to become aware of that is once they took me off of the NSAID two weeks later, I had reached two feet to get a telephone while I was standing and the phone was ringing. And I ended up on the floor for three hours and then in the bed for three days until I went to a neurological surgeon in Nashville, Tennessee. At the time, I was living in Owensboro, Kentucky. And in any event, he diagnosed me with ankylosing spondylitis and said that if he had touched me in any way with surgery, I would probably end up paralyzed. And he started me in the process of going to pain management doctors because they had different ways to be able to treat it to keep you comfortable and have a good life. But one of the things that I've learned from that journey is you've got to find the right pain management doctor that knows how to do the injections and put the needles in the exact spots where they need to put the steroids so that you can live a comfortable life. You and I talked a little bit before we recorded. Many people that are diagnosed with either non-radiographic or, as you were, ankylosing spondylitis will take a biologic. But you were not able to do that 
tell a little bit about what happened there. No, actually, I never was allowed to do biologic. Kidney failure prevents you from doing biologic. So I've had to cope around it without any form of biologic, which I have always wished I could because I, I understand you can get a lot of relief from them. Again, this is what makes this disease so difficult is that all of us deal with these symptoms completely different and what affects one person another person may have no issues with at all and that's from a patient standpoint it's very frustrating it is and the other frustration with ankylosing spondylitis is there's nobody has ever put together a real comprehensive list of all of the peripheral illnesses that you have to deal with sometimes with this disease and so you go through the process of living with this disease, and every time you turn around, they're giving you a new diagnosis of something else that's a problem. Well, and, you know, I'm not really sure if I think we keep discovering new peripheral issues that this disease kicks out. I, when I was diagnosed, it was 1984, completely different time. What I was told initially about ankylosing spondylitis, and not the doctor's fault, is what he was taught, has now changed dramatically. And there's so many new pieces to learn about, whether it be nerve issues, uh, eye issues, you know, organ issues. They all come into play. And with my last episode, the one I did right before you, Carrie, if you take ankylosing spondylitis spectrum and also the non-radiographic spectrum of disease, they're probably one long, you know, continuum of the disease and using the term axial spondyl arthritis going forward is probably the more appropriate. You and I may have at one point had lesser issues when we would be diagnosed as non-radiographic, and it's progressed to a point where you and I, as patients with ankylosing spondylitis, are dealing with a whole different set when you add in that fusing. So it's really a an amazing disease and an amazing time to be learning about this. Now, with that, you've been dealing with this now for over a decade. When you first got the diagnosis for ankylosing spondylitis, you had your kidney issues, it sounds like, that prevented certain medications. You deal heavily with a pain management doctor. I don't. So all the things you talk about are, are new to me. Tell a little bit about what happens when you go to a pain management doctor. What do, what do they help you with and how do they work with you to control it? Well, they can control it through series of medications that they can give you, injectables like steroid injections to the places where, for example, the buildup is so bad that it is putting pressure on your nerves, uh, SI joint, etc. In fact, my SI joint is nearly gone. Um, it's deteriorated so bad at this point. You also deal with uh, what they call, I think it's called radial nerve burning where they burn the, the, the nerves off of the fork on the back of your spine, and that controls a lot of the pain um, if they know how to do it and put the tool right in the right place. The injectables are the exact same way. If you've got a doctor that doesn't know exactly where to put that needle, you're not going to get a good benefit from it. So I've actually been through four pain management doctors until I found one that works right for me. That was my struggle. For five years, they had me so heavily on narcotics that I couldn't even function. And that's part of the reason why I ended up having to be re retired from work, because I couldn't even figure out 
how to pick up a telephone. They had me so doped up. And when I came to this doctor that I'm going to now, who has become my living hero, the first thing he asked me was, what do you seek to accomplish out of working with me? And I said, however you can manage this pain and get me off of all of these narcotics because I don't have a life and I want a life. I haven't slept in five years and I want to be able to sleep. It didn't take him long and he helped me work to get off of the narcotics um, for the most part. I had gone from taking morphine and allotted on 12-hour cycles and hydrocodone, the maximum doses, every four hours and heavy muscle relaxants like um, Soma Compound 350 milligrams. They had me on Ambien and they had me on a bupropofene pain patch, which is a seven-day delivery system where you have to wear a patch for seven days and change it every seven days. In any event, that was creating a situation where I couldn't even have a daily life, if you will. It was not living. I will, I will put it to you that way. And this doctor has actually gotten me down to where I take 50 milligrams of tramadol at bedtime. Most days, that's all I take at bedtime. I'm still on a bupropofene patch. And aside from that, he took me off the heavy muscle relaxant and put me on a mild dose of uh, tizanidine, six milligram dose, that helps my back muscles relax during the night so that I have a better day the next day. And by having gotten me off of all of that, I think that's created the situation where I sleep somewhere between seven and eight hours every night. Oh, nice. And if I sleep, the, the only real problem with that is if I sleep too sound, I don't move, and it takes me a while to get out of the bed in the morning. <laughs> but I found the motion platform. I found the motion platform helps me to get set up in the bed, and once I'm there, I can get out of the bed. Yeah, it's, it's always something with AS. If you win on one side, you're going to pay for it a little bit on the other side. You just got to figure out if it's worth it or not. Yes, if, if somebody out there knows a good bed, let me know, because I've actually spent $7,000 on beds in the last six years, and there's not one I've come across yet that is very accommodating to this, and I'm not sure that there is one. But It's such a weird thing with mattresses. I ended up Everybody kept saying, you need a foam, you need a foam, you need a foam. So my parents had a couple of those various foam mattresses, you know, the memory foam in their house. So I went over and uh-huh. slept on one just to see if I'd like it or not. And it was okay. But the way my back is, I'm a side sleeper most of the time. And what I found made the difference, I ended up buying an okay mattress. It's not a memory foam. It's more of a, what they would call a pillow top type mattress. And... It's worked out fantastic for me, but I also bought one of those adjustable bed frames, and I use that on occasion. There's a setting on that called zero gravity. Yes, sir. That helps a little bit. None of it is great, but it helps a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. That mattress is a really strange thing. I'll tell you, the best that I ever found to sleep on is a latex cord mattress if you're not allergic to latex. But the only problem comes with that in my situation is I live alone, and I can't lift the mattress to change the sheets on the thing. So it's actually become my guest bedroom bed. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine if that's got a latex cord, that bugger would be heavy. Yeah, it weighs a ton. It takes three people to move it. So what I ended up, what I've got now is a memory foam, Serta. 
it's called sort of eye comfort. Okay. And that's what I'm using. And it's a good mattress, but the problem is, is the memory foam the mattress is you tend to sink down into them and you get in this hole and then you can't turn it over. <laughs> if, if you're, you know, restricted on your movement like I am, you can't, you find you can't turn over in it. And that's what my big issue with it. I don't know who makes the mattress that my parents have. It was comfortable. It wasn't that I disliked it. And I only slept on it for one night, so it's kind of hard to make an evaluation after only one night. Yeah. But it wasn't bad. It wasn't great either. It was just, uh, okay, you know, it's it was just a mattress. But I know I could do episodes on mattresses and construction and choices because that's one of the main yeah. things I see people ask about all the time is, I need a mattress recommendation. Mine's killing me. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I don't know that there is one single mattress out there that would help anybody. It's just part of the coping with a disease, you know. It, there's just nothing that's actually 100% comfortable. So you just got to kind of find the best ways to get through exactly your daily life to minimize that so you can have a quality of life. Yeah. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you, and, and this is more out of a curiosity, um, there's so many of us that have this disease that live up north, and we all think about, man, it'd be great to go down to a warm climate to help with alleviating some of the pain. You're in Georgia. Georgia is known yeah. for having high humidity. How does that affect you? The humidity, if you want to live in a hot climate, find one that's hot and dry. I think that would help more than anything, because the humidity changes are when I notice the most flare up with this. It's where I end up having the most pain in the base tone. Okay. If the humidity makes a massive change or if it's extremely high, then I'm miserable. Dry, hot is great. <laughs> I spent 10 years, almost 10 years in Arizona, and it was a hot, dry heat. And I tell everybody, and it wasn't just Phoenix being there. It was when I would go to Sedona. It was when I would go to anywhere that dry climate really was fantastic for me it just made all the difference in the world but see i'll tell you another thing that i deal with as, as a peripheral to this, this, this disease i'm actually in lung failure because of it i have um what's called an elevated diaphragm in my right lung that is paralyzed the third lobe of the right lung is just black it's completely dead non-functioning whatsoever and then my left lung doesn't function exactly correctly because of the beginnings of nerve damage to it. So one of the other things that makes life very difficult with regard to the humidity is the breathing. And I do better when I'm in hotter, drier climates on the breathing as well. Huh, interesting. Being that I'm in Michigan, everybody always says, oh, I want to retire and go to Florida. And I've spent time, I've not spent enough time in Florida to know how the humidity would affect me like if I live there during the warm season, but I do uh -huh. know what the warm season in Arizona is like. And for me, like I said, last time I was in Arizona, I was in Sedona with my ex-wife and we did a four mile hike, which doesn't sound like much, but it was up Bell Rock, which is a mountain or up Bell Mountain or whatever they call it. And I walk with a cane because I have nerve damage from my left hip. I have a drop foot. So when I got two miles up the trail, up the side of the mountain with my cane, people were looking at me trying to figure out how the heck I had gotten up that high. <laughs> it's the lack of humidity. And you don't want to live in Florida because it's surrounded on three sides by water. I can tell you it's hot and humid in the summertime down there. Yeah, it's it, the humidity, I think, would just absolutely kill me. And I think humidity is the worst thing that we can deal with. 
<laughs> yeah, that that makes a lot of sense and and answers. I wondered. I always wonder when I talk to somebody that's in a climate, like I said, how that affects you because there's so many people that ask that, and that's a question. I, it's great to have you be able to answer that for the listeners. Yes, and and I, I lived 10 years in Kentucky since. In fact, that's where I was diagnosed with this disease. And where I lived in Kentucky, the humidity is similar, but it's not quite as bad up there as it is down here. The only problem is in, in that part of Kentucky where I live, the temperatures in the wintertime, they're very damp, wet, cold temperatures, and it can get colder than Nome, Alaska there. I, I mean, it's been 23, or, 23 degrees below zero when I lived there. And that's in Kentucky? Yes. I didn't think it got that cold there. That's that's amazing to hear. Well, it, it's because of the town where I live being surrounded on three sides by water. We get lake effect snows and everything like that because of the fact that the Ohio River crooks the way it does around the town where I live. Oh, okay. Interesting. Now, one of the things I wanted to bring in and talk about is you and I discussed a little bit earlier is keeping up as best you can, keeping a positive mental attitude to allow yourself to... Yes. Um, keep pushing forward to keep putting one foot in front of the other and go forward. And in listening to you and in your story, you've had a series of events that would crush a lot of people and you've overcome those. And I'd love to hear you tell the listeners a little bit about what you went through and how you overcame that. Sure. With the crushing part of it, it's every time I get a new diagnosis, you know, I'm in kidney failure, my bladder doesn't function. My lungs are failing. I'm at the beginning of heart failure issues. Every time I've been given one of those, it just kind of takes me down six steps. And at the very beginning of this, when I started receiving diagnoses, I had a really good friend who was a business psychologist. I had a master's degree in it. And I was living in Kentucky, like I said, at the time. And I made a trip down here because this is where he lived at the time and spent a weekend with him talking about how to cope with it and the big thing that I learned from him is that if you can learn how to compartmentalize the illnesses and push them away, except when you're going to the doctor, and maintain whatever it takes to keep your health good on whatever ailment that you have, then if you're focusing on doing what you're doing, but not paying any attention to what caused it, then you can get beyond some of the emotionality of it. And it helps me keep a more positive attitude and like you say, keep pushing forward. And that's pretty much how I get through it. I belong to a group on Facebook, Living with Ankylosing Spondylitis. If you don't know that, join it. It's very helpful. But a lot of the people that I see on there are at the beginning stages, and they're figuring out that they lay out of work for medical leave because they're not able to, and then they start figuring out, I'm not sure I'll ever be able to go back to work. And it's hard for me to see people hurting. And I, this, this is you giving me this offer gave me an opportunity to share my experience on how I cope with that. And I hope that other people can learn from that and begin to have a happier life. I spend a lot of my time trying to encourage people to be able to compartmentalize so that they can focus on living and enjoying life rather than sitting and waiting to die. Yeah, I think that's really great way to look at it because i know for me and going back to what you're saying when it finally came time when i said i just can't work anymore that's an extremely hard decision and as a guy i found my entire 
self-worth was tied up in my ability to work and bring home a paycheck. And once that was removed, that was really kind of a crushing thing for me to deal with. And it took going and talking to a professional therapist to help to overcome some of that because the first two weeks I was out of work, you know, as I went on disability, that was great. It was kind of like a vacation. After that, realizing that, okay, it's Monday and I'm not headed back into work after my vacation. It's Tuesday, it's Thursday, it's Friday, it's Saturday. That became a very hard thing to deal with. And I'm three years into the disability now, I guess it's been. And it's really just within the last probably year that I've been able to really truly accept it and not mourn my past life, my pre-disability life. And a lot of it has been this podcast and helping to share the stories like yours and the other things I've put out there. That helps to me to focus on am I doing something good for somebody? Is somebody taking some value from this? Exactly. And I'll tell you, I lived through the exact same experience. I was at my professional high when I was told that I would not be able to go back to work. And I'd actually been through four back surgeries, two to implant neurostimulators to make myself more comfortable to be able to walk because my legs are severely affected by this and my feet. I have neuropathy so bad in my feet when I go to bed at night, they feel like each one of my toes are a pillow that's 500 times the size of the foot. I can't even put my feet under the covers. But (laughs) I don't really feel hot and cold with them either, so that doesn't really make much of a difference. I just can't tolerate anything touching them. Right. But being told that you cannot go back to work when you're at your peak and you're excelling above everybody else in your company and – I mean, I know a lot of men identify who they are with what they do. Uh, I'm sure there are quite a few women that also do the same, even though women tend to have to be spread over many different jobs, not just a work job, but home, et cetera. And when you get to the point where you can't do what you love doing and what you're good at, and it took me 30 years to find the job (laughs) that I loved, and then you're told suddenly one day you can't do it. Yes, it took me two years to get beyond it. And then I suddenly woke up one day and I was like, I've got to start focusing on things that I enjoy doing and forget about the fact that I can't go to work. And I got into investments and doubled what I had put back for retirement and made my goal, what I had hoped to have, but ended up having to quit work 14 years, 15 years earlier than I wanted to. So I had to find a way to make that up so that I could continue to live. Sure. And so I did that, and that got tiring. And when I moved back here to Atlanta, uh, to the home that I owned, I went through an entire gut and remodel process. I've actually got this house on the market right now to sell it because I had plans to build a new home. In any event, I kept finding things to put my focus on. And after a while, you figure out, how in the world did I ever have any time to work? Isn't that the truth? And get everything done and uh, that, that I'm trying to accomplish here. I'm busier now than when I worked. Yeah, uh, well, I, I can understand that. And I have been up to this point. When the coronavirus hit the United States, I became very isolated because I have too many health issues to put myself in a situation of being exposed to it because it would kill me. So that being isolated in, at my house has been very hard because I'm a very social creature. But one of the things that I picked up in the last month is I haven't done pleasure reading since I was 
25 years old and I've, I've actually read three novels in the last two weeks. <laughs> and I found that that has helped me with the isolation part of it. But before the isolation, I would get out and walk in the park, but now I'm kind of confined to my driveway because I don't want to come across somebody. And I pace my driveway a lot of the day and there's nothing, no one position I can stay in for more than two hours without my body beginning to lock up. So I'm constantly transitioning from sitting to standing to walking to, to laying down and sitting, standing and walking and laying down so that I can keep my body moving during the day. And, and that's how I cope. And that's really good. To know. It's, it's really interesting, again, to get other people's perspectives on how they cope with ankylosing spondylitis. And for the last little bit, I've been interviewing ladies to because as a man, I have no clue what it's like being a woman with ankylosing spondylitis, going to the doctor's, trying to deal with any issues of explaining how they're feeling, that it's not this disease, they think it's this disease. I I see women post all sorts of stuff that it's a complete, really weird, for me, a really odd way that they unfortunately have to go through as they, they deal with getting a diagnosis. So I decided getting a man's point of view is also very interesting to share. A, it's, I can more identify with it, but B, it gives a whole different perspective in showing that you had the disease for a long time. It was never properly diagnosed. You went through all those painful issues until you finally were diagnosed. But unfortunately, everything for treatment purposes is not available to you. So where I don't deal with a pain management doctor, as I said, you do. And I find that what they do with you is interesting. And I think the listeners will garner a lot from that because I see them talk about going into pain management doctors. What do I ask? How do I talk to them? What do I need to do? So I, I think your perspective is so valuable that way. Well, I, I'll tell you, my, my biggest goal that I hope comes from this is that I can help other people understand that if you figure out how to compartmentalize the disease and the things that you deal with because of it and put that on a shelf and get it out of your mind and just do what you have to do to take care of your body, and go on and focus on trying to find things that you can still enjoy. That is the single most helpful thing to me. And I feel like attitude and and how you're coping with it is half the battle. I really feel very strongly about that. It is half battle. If you can get your mind in a positive perspective and you can get your body to a level of pain that you can cope with, you don't ever get rid of it completely, but if you can get it where you can cope with it, then start focusing on those things that you you can enjoy. And it's like you almost, I mean, my life is anything but normal, but you come to a point where you realize that this is my new normal and I found ways to be happy and go on and live. Oh, fantastic. And it's the reason why I've got goals. It's the reason why I still make goals to do things. My biggest goal got quashed. I actually had a 27-day planned trip to Africa, and unfortunately that got canceled, and I likely won't be able to do that after another year because I'm already at a point where I can only walk about two and a half miles a day still be able to function. So it took that away from me, but I still have goals is my point, like building a new house. 
getting my youngest son, who also is disabled, where we're in a situation where we can watch after each other. Having my grandkids around me, I, I spend a lot of time with my grandkids because they bring such joy to me. Their youth and their vibrance and their gusto for life is a, a positive effect on me, too. Oh, that's fantastic. As we look at ankylosing spondylitis, just from an overall emotional standpoint, we talked about getting up and going to work, and that that's understandable. That's a crushing blow. It's something that can be overcome if you keep the right attitude, uh, and it's something that many, if not all, eventually will face with ankylosing spondylitis. But on the emotional side, not work, but just in the emotional side, dealing with family, friends, what type of issues did you encounter there when you had to explain that you had a disease called ankylosing spondylitis, and did it matter to anybody? I would have to say it mattered to everybody in my family, my support group in Kentucky in particular. At the time that I was diagnosed, my mother was still alive, and it gave her like a new purpose to live. The one of those four surgeries, I ended up with an infection, and they had this rip unit out of my back. Well, actually, in both circumstances, but... The second one was really bad because it happened within a week that they had to take it out after they would just implanted it. And when they got me in there, I had the infection all over my body, and I went into sepsis and went into a coma for four days. And they didn't think I was going to live. I can remember hearing the doctor standing over my bed crying and telling me, I've never lost a patient doing what I'm doing, but I'm afraid I'm going to lose you, Harry. So... And my mother never left my side in those four days. She never left my side, in spite of the fact that nobody at the hospital even brought her food to eat. So the family support that I found from my mother and my two sisters who were nurses and uh, my twin brother at the time, he was ill healthy. It was before he ended up with lung disease that ended up causing him to have a lung transplant. Everybody was very supportive in that respect. But I'm assuming... Being a divorced man, I don't know, but I'm assuming that it's a bit of a different dynamic. I have to say that my children have been very supportive of me since I've lived here, but it's not easy for them to be here because they live about 40 and 50 miles away, and of course, they've got their jobs, etc. So it's hard for them to help me, but I have a good support group of friends that live around me in the neighborhood that I live in. I've got a couple that live two doors down to me that adopted me, and they have me to dinner two or three nights a week because they didn't like seeing me sitting alone on my front porch. <laughs> it's just amazing how people want to step up and be supportive of you and befriend you and help you in ways that you cannot imagine. And I think that's really a key takeaway is be open and accepting of people that want to help. Don't look at it as that you can't do something. Just accept the help. Thank them. You know, in your case, the the folks are making dinner. You can show up with the fixings and let them cook the dinner. There's all sorts of ways that you can be helpful to them just as much as they're being helpful to you. Well, like from time to time, I'll supply the meat they were going to eat trying to bring something that goes with a meal. If it's a, a side dish or providing the meat to be cooked or something of that nature. And they don't feel like they have all the burden of it. And we actually enjoy the time together because they're self-isolating as well. So we... It's social hour. We're pretty safe. Yeah, it gives me an opportunity to have some social time. I tell you, they've been saviors through this. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's so important right now is to make sure that you're not so isolated to the listeners out there that you're not so isolated that you're not interacting. You've got to find somebody that you're comfortable with that you feel that that is on the same plane, so to speak, to interact with them. And, you know, I, I really think with this disease that during normal times, it becomes very easy to isolate yourself. And so these times can make it just that much harder to get that person to person contact that you need. Exactly. And see, I finally felt like I was beginning to get my life back when they closed down the state of Georgia. And on February 1st, and since then, I've pretty much been isolated, except for those two neighbors and then my youngest son's family, because they all self-isolate as well. But I can't go around my daughter and my two granddaughters. I can't go around my oldest son and his daughter and son, because they all work outside. So... We've, we've even found, found ways to communicate through that. Ironically, I bought Echo shows for every one of my kids for Christmas and my ex-wife as well. We have a pretty good relationship, too. So once a week, my grandkids will call me up and say, from my granddaughter, and say, look what dances we learned this week or this cheer or that cheer. So we have that interaction time where we can see each other. The, the hard part is, I'm a husky person, so it's that part, not having that human touch is really difficult for me. But I try not to focus on that. I try to focus on the good that can come out of the relationships that I have that I can still have interactions with. Even the couple down the street that I have dinner with, they've set their, di- their carport up like a dining room, and we eat outside to social distance. Oh, cool. Well, with that, now you're on Facebook, correct? Yes, sir. I, I'm in that group called Living with Ankylosis Spondylitis, which is a really good group. So if you're listening and you have ankylosing spondylitis or non-radiographic and you want to touch base with Carrie, look for his posts. I see him being active in the Living with Ankylosing Spondylitis forum. He's also out there. Shoot him a message. And, you know, any type of connection with anybody is fantastic. And so I encourage people to interact together. But I really appreciate you coming on the show to share your journey, Carrie. It's not easy to talk about all the time. And you've had a number of outside health issues that only served to even complicate the ankylosing spondylitis. So I, I appreciate you talking about it being so open and sharing with everybody. Well, I, like I told you at the beginning of this, my whole goal in life is to lift one another up. And if there's anything I can do to help anybody with how to get to a happy place in their life, I really want to do that. I really want to do that. I used to do it by taking people in that didn't have any real training on how to live life outside the home from their parents and give them the tools that they needed and then would send them out once I got them on their feet and they've had happy lives. That's my whole focus in life is to try to help people get to happy place. I mean, there's such negativity in this world that we've got to find ways around it. So if there's a way that I can help with this type of negativity, it's what I can do now where I can't really take anybody in anymore. I don't have the physical ability that I used to do to help them. Nope, understandable, and I appreciate that. And so, any of you listeners, feel free to reach out to Carrie. Great resource, a lot of information if you're questioning dealing with pain management doctors, dealing with ankylosing spondylitis. If you're a man and you're not sure what ways you're going to possibly be affected that might be different than women, you know, reach out to Carrie, reach out to myself. Any of us are happy to talk to you. So, 
again, Carrie, I thank you so much for your time. And I hope you have a wonderful afternoon and enjoy. Hopefully the rain passes over you from the storm and you have a, a great weekend. <laughs> thank you so much, Jason. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. You take care. Enjoy. Thank you.